Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome everyone, here we are at episode 7. Happy Halloween month. Even though our show is pretty Halloween-y all year long, clearly it is called Haunting History, we are taking the month of October to concentrate more on the paranormal things. And at the end, after our music plays, we'll be announcing our Halloween show and how you can be a part of it. So stay tuned all the way to the end. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to do a couple shout-outs. But first, as I always do, I want to introduce my co-host for today, Haley. How's it going, Haley? Hey, it's good. You love Halloween season two? I do. Favorite time of the year? It is. Mine too. Okay, my shout outs. Firstly, to the podcast community as a whole. I've had more help and support from other podcasters than in anything I've ever done in my life. Tammy with Hollyweird Paranormal for doing a podcast about Hollywood and the paranormal. I swear you read my soul when you created this podcast. She was incredibly supportive and gave me advice I will honestly take to heart. And even though I wasn't emailing with Bryce from Hollyweird Paranormal, I kind of pretended that I was because I have a fangirl crush on him. Cody Beck with American Hauntings Podcast. If you haven't listened to Cody and Troy, you are truly missing out on one of, if not the best history podcast around. Troy is everything I want to be in a historian and researcher, and Cody is probably the nicest person I've ever communicated with. His show is amazing and so well done, and he's so supportive. His feedback was more than I could have asked for. Diane from History Goes Bump, thank you so much for your email and your suggestions. We have gotten so much support, and our download numbers reflect that. So thank you to all of our listeners and friends and our family who listen and comment and rate and review. You have no idea how much that helps us, so please keep doing it. And for my family and friends, for your calls and text to remind me of this story or an idea for an episode that we should do. Becky and my sister, Colleen, for your brutally honest reviews every week. You both tell me honestly what you think and what we could change, and you do it so supportively, I never feel anything but love. To Paula, thank you so much for listening to me every day about everything podcast all the time. I wanted to say thank you to our first listeners who commented and sent me videos about the Cecil Hotel and the Elisa Lamb case, Jamie and Pemba. Thank you for taking the time to contact us. I watched the video, and I got so creeped out by the music, and I don't know... That's a coincidence or not. Thank you so much for commenting and interacting with us. And lastly, thank you to Michael with Monsters and Friends podcast. You are equally my new PBFF podcast best friend. With that done, please keep sending us your comments and rating and reviewing. It's helping us to climb the charts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Haunting History Podcast or email us at hauntinghistorypodcast.com. And remember, it only takes a second to click on those five stars and it makes a huge difference. And don't forget to stay tuned till the end for after our music for our information on our Halloween episode. So today we're going to leave Southern California for the East Coast. And we've had quite a few listeners suggest this story because they want to hear it. And because we always want to bring to you the stories from the past that you want to hear. Our conversation today is going to be about Amityville. You may have heard of the house. It's been the subject of numerous books and movies dating all the way back to the 1970s. It's probably the most talked about and controversial haunted house in America. Some say the claims of the Lutz family are 100% true. Others claim that George Lutz was out to make money and used his imagination to create a story that survived for the past 40 years. In fact, it hasn't just survived, it's taken on a life of its own. People have worked to debunk the family's claims, while others have held on to the information 
that was given out by renowned or some say infamous ghost hunters like Ed and Lorraine Warren. But is Amityville a horror or a hoax? Haley, do you know about Amityville? I know about the movies and the book and that documentary that came out I probably saw a few years ago of one of the sons. But history of the house, history of why it's haunted and stuff, I don't really know. I have an idea, but I don't know any facts about it, if there are facts, because, again, it's controversial. It's controversial because it was probably the first, I mean, outside of, like, the 1800s when the the story about the girls that were hearing the knockings, which is probably another story we should do, but um, it's probably the biggest story to ever come out about paranormal, ever, that was publicized. Really? Well, yeah, I, I mean... I guess I don't know the timeline of when movies came out, but it was the first, I believe it was the first or one of the first that was supposedly based on a true story. Did you actually watch the movies? Yeah. Either one of them? Yeah. The one from 2005 and the one from 1977? Yeah, I think so. Really? Yeah. I don't think I've seen the 2005 one. They reference it in the documentary that you saw with the sons though. Yeah. And they, I don't remember what they said, that it was over-dramatized. I feel like he kind of said that, but at the same time said all the things that we said happened, happened. So, like, he almost contradicted himself, like, oh, that was a bunch of drama. That was for what they portrayed in the movies. But also, all those crazy things happened. So, like, it, but he's crazy. See, and I don't, I don't know. I know he's angry. I don't know if he's crazy. I don't, it was uncomfortable watching him in the documentary. Like, I wanted to watch it because I was interested in it, but, like, he was uncomfortable to watch. I don't know which documentary you're talking about because I believe both sons did a documentary, but the one in particular where he was kind of awkward to watch. People say that he's been haunted by this house for 40-something years. Yeah, I mean, like, psychologically affected him or whatever. I, yeah, I for sure think it defined him. You don't? Yeah, but... I don't know. It's like one of those things when someone tries to convince you so much that something is real, it's almost like you don't believe that it's real. See, and I didn't feel like he tried to convince you it was real. Well, he was I defensive. Think he, he was defensive, but I think it, he was trying to basically put it all on his stepdad. I don't think he was trying to say that the house was haunted prior to them living there. I don't know. I'd have to watch it again. That the dad did that. That the, dad, that the stepdad did it to the house. Because he was... Um, he said that he was dealing in black magic and conjuring up things. Yeah. The house at 112 Ocean Avenue is located 30 miles outside of New York City in the Long Island town of Amityville. This is a site that on November 13, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald J. DeFeo Jr., better known as Betch, murdered his entire family while they were asleep. The victims, I'm going to let you tell who the victims are, Haley. The victims were Ronald DeFeo Sr., age 43, Luis, 42, Dawn, 18, Allison, 13, Mark, 12, John, aged 9. All six of the victims were found face down, lying on their stomachs in their beds with no signs of a struggle. To give you some background on Ronald, again, he was better known as Butch. He was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. He was the oldest of five children. His dad was a successful car salesman who worked for his father-in-law's Brooklyn dealership. He provided the family with a comfortable upper middle class lifestyle. And then, we, you know, we've talked in the past about the moms that were domineering or it was always the moms. In this case, the dad was very domineering and he was an authority figure. He fought often with his wife and his children. Um, a lot of people say that he targeted Butch. He expected more out of him because he was the oldest. 
it apparently when he was in school, Butch was um, bullied and taunted by classmates for being overweight and lazy. As Butch grew older, he was began lashing out physically against his father, so he started to fight back, and as well as his friends. The family started taking him to a psychiatrist when he was younger, but Butch denied that he needed help. He didn't want to go to the psychiatrist. And the family didn't make him, and I don't know if it was the stigma, like people knew that he was going to a psychiatrist and they didn't want to embarrass their family and they were upper middle class, people, you know, knew what they were doing. Or if they just really gave in to him. To me, he sounds like he was incredibly spoiled. Like they didn't, they didn't really demand a lot out of him. They let him stop going to see the psychiatrist and they started buying him things to buy better behavior. They bought him a $14,000 boat. A boat. A boat. And I don't know if you realize this about the house, but the house, well, it's beautiful. I mean, other than the creepy windows that aren't there anymore. The house was, was very large. And it was built on a canal, and there was a lake behind it, and a dock, and a swimming pool. It was a really, really nice house. They clearly had money to buy a $14,000 boat in the 70s. It's just insane to buy your kid a boat. Yeah, I don't think like he was most, even 18 yet. Yeah, most kids it. don't even get a car on their 16th birthday, let alone know, a, a boat to play with. Right, it was a speedboat, too. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, they, they hoped that the gifts would placate their troubled son. But apparently that made it worse. By the age of 17, he was using LSD and heroin. He ended up being expelled from school for violent outburst. And the DeFeos just continued to, to reward their son. At 18, they gave him a position at the grandfather's car dealership with the dad. And it was a position that someone at 18 shouldn't have gotten, let alone someone who didn't finish high school shouldn't have gone, right. gotten. He... Had no expectations at work. He earned the same weekly paycheck from his dad and his grandfather, regardless of whether he showed up for work, whether he performed his job or anything. He ended up using all his money to buy things like guns and alcohol and drugs. But his behavior began to increase over time, his weird behavior. He threatened a friend with a rifle during a hunting trip, and I guess the witnesses of it said it was so strange he threatened his friends with a rifle and then just a little bit later pretended like it never even happened. Yikes, it's scary. But clearly, there was something wrong with him. I mean, he murdered his family, so clearly there's something wrong with him. Um, he also attempted to shoot his father with a 12-gauge shotgun during a fight between a, between his parents, not even with him involved. He pulled the trigger at point-blank range, but the gun malfunctioned. His surprised father ended the argument, but was left stunned by the confrontation, they say. The incident foreshadowed the more violent events to come. He complained about not being paid enough at the car. See, this is where he sounds like just a spoiled shit. He got the job he shouldn't have gotten anyways. And then he complained that they didn't pay him enough. So he came up with this grand scheme to embezzle money, which they put him in charge of doing the bank deposits, like to give him more responsibility. Well, he worked it out with his friend that his friend would quote unquote rob him and then they would split the money. So what he did was he ended up stealing $20,000 and then when he went back to the dealership and told them that he got robbed, they called the police. And then he got violent and defensive with the police and was yelling at them about how, what was him? He was robbed and they're not doing anything to find the burg- the guy that robbed him. But the police almost immediately suspected that he had planned it and the father did and the father confronted him on it. But he still refused to comply. And um, the father, when the father went to question him about it, knowing pretty much for sure that he had done it, but threatened to kill his dad. So clearly they're giving him all this stuff, you know, the whole nature versus nurture thing. Mm -hmm. They're giving him 
way too many, probably should have been put away a long time ago. As the story goes, early on the morning of November 13th, 1974, like I told you earlier, he acted on his threat. Using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his secret gun stash, he entered his parents' bedroom and shot them both while they were asleep. Then he entered his brother's bedroom, shooting them both in their beds. He ended the spree by shooting his sisters point blank in their bedrooms. All the murders took place within 15 minutes. Butch then showered, dressed for work, collected his bloody clothing and the murder weapon in a pillowcase. He dumped the evidence in a storm drain on the way to work at the dealership at 6 a.m. When he got to work, he called home, pretending not to know why his father hadn't shown up for work. Around noon, he told everyone he was bored and he left and spent the day with friends. He attempted to tell everyone that he ran into that he couldn't get a hold of his parents at home and no one was answering the phone. So he was kind of like making a plan for... He was setting up his story and his alibi and... Exactly. Yeah. For the entire day. At around 6.30 that day, Butch ran into Henry's bar in Amityville. He said, you got to help me. You got to help me. I think my father and mother are shot. And then so a small group of people with Butch all ran to the house and found that DeFeo's parents were indeed dead. One of the group, the DeFeo's friend, Joe Yeswit, made an emergency call to the Suffolk County Police who searched the house and found that all six members of the family were dead in their beds. I have the transcript from the 911 call, and I'll put it, I'll, I'll share it on our website, so make sure that you go look at it if you're interested in that. But basically, Joe calls the, the police, and, and they're, they, they're confused by it because they answer the phone, and he says, there's a shooting here, the DeFeo house. Adafeo. And so then they keep asking what his name is. And he's tries to explain that he doesn't know the house number. He doesn't have the phone number. The phone number's back in those days when the phone, when your phone sat on your kitchen counter or on the wall, it had the phone number usually like written on a piece of paper in a plastic cover. And he keeps saying, there's no phone number here. And they're kind of going in there like, there's a shooting. Is anybody hurt? And he's like, yeah, everyone's dead. And so finally they, they send the police to the house. After a bunch of confusion. After a bunch of confusion of this phone call. And if you, we were going to read it for you, but it's just so convoluted. He's trying to say, he's trying to explain that everyone in the house is dead and they're not really it's buying wacky. it. It's wacky. Like, I would not want to call 911 and have that operator answer. No. Because it's like the most confusing phone call. She can't, he or she, whoever it is, I'm not sure, can't understand what's going on. Can't, it's just, it's kind of frustrating actually to read it because it's like, hello. Well, and I kind of wonder if maybe it was just so unheard of. Like, when he said everyone's dead, she might have just been like, he's, this has got to be a crank Maybe, but, like, she's all, he's all, she's asking questions and he's answering it and then she's like, it's weird. The reading it is weird. Like, they can't figure out the spelling of the name. They don't understand that he doesn't know what house he's at. Like, it's all very crazy. Yeah, well, and he's clearly flustered as he calls. And I, the, towards the end, the police officer says, how many bodies are there? And he said, I think, I don't know. I think they said four. They said, so... He must not have gone around the house, like, himself to look. Yeah. I don't know. But, I mean, it was clearly Butch had a volatile relationship with his father. But the motive for killing them, it's still 43 years later or whatever it is. More than that. It's still unknown. Nobody knows. Yeah. At one point, he did ask the police how he would go about collecting his father's life insurance policy. Which is kind of what made them start to question him well no that's not what made them question him but they were like it just kind of piled it was on. a red flag yeah it was definitely a red flag 
when they questioned him that night, he tried to say that it was a a, a man that the, his dad knew. His name was Fellini, who was somehow associated with the mafia or something. And he tried to say there was an old grudge between the man and the family, and that he believes that he hit the he believes that his family was alive when he left for work and that this Fellini man maybe came in and killed him after, which didn't really make sense. The police figured out because they were all still in their pajamas. So they're not really buying that. He's just trying to make up all these things. Pulling it's things just the, the beginning. It's yeah. just the beginning of the things that he makes up. They, they took him into custody that night, but not to arrest him. They took him into protective custody because he was making it seem like some man came in the house and killed his whole family. So they took him to protect him, not to put him in jail. But after the police, after the coroner came and everything, and the police searched the house more rigorously, they found an empty box for a recently purchased thirty-five caliber Marlin gun in his room. And as the timeline came together, it seemed unrealistic that the murders had happened after he had left for work at 6 o'clock. And it placed Butch at home at the time of the homicides because he did have a good alibi because he had gone to work and then he went to friends and friends and friends. And it says that when authorities questioned him about the new evidence, he began changing his story. He said that that same man, Fellini, like the one that he talked about, came to the house in the morning and put a gun to his head and dragged him from room to room murdering his family. And then the police kind of got him to realize that was a stupid story too. And so he finally confessed. He broke down and said, once I started, I couldn't stop. It went so fast. Over the years, Butch has changed his story several times, including claiming that his sister Dawn committed the murders and that um, she was only killed by accident because he tried to get the gun away from her. And then he changed it to his mom, shot the dad, and then decided to kill the kids because they were witnesses. And he tried to stop him from killing the kids. But there's some things that are really complicated about it oh he even said that he wasn't even living at home that he was married to some girl in new jersey and that he only came home because his mom had called him and said that the oldest sister and the dad were fighting and she wanted his help so i mean that one that one was really far-fetched because he wasn't married at the time so i don't know why he thought that he clearly was delusional that he thought he could lie about things that were just easily proven right or wrong yeah so he kept coming up with all these different crazy stories but there's something i wanted to tell you oh that the police say it's nearly impossible for him to kill his entire family the way that he did because they were all laying execution style in their beds and a silencer was not used so just shooting the dad first would have woken up the mom and those two gunshots from a caliber, whatever the caliber, 35 caliber weapon would have woken up the boys and the girls, but he killed them all laying in their beds. Like, why would they have not fought back against their brother? Why would they just gladly laid face down in their bed and been shot in the head or the back? Like, I don't know. And they said that that he couldn't have done it by himself in the time limit. He had, then there was no silencer for the gun. No neighbors heard anything except for the dog barking that night. And there was unburnt gunpowder on the oldest sister, which several experts said that she had to have had the gun near her 
when it was used because it was unburnt. I don't really know anything about it. I don't really either, but they said because it was unburnt gunpowder, so it was shooting out of, I guess, the opposite end of the gun instead of the barrel of the gun. And someone can correct me if that's wrong. But it unburnt gunpowder would be on the shooter, not on a victim. Burnt gunpowder would be on the victim. Right. So unburnt gunpowder was found on Don. So there are questions about whether he acted alone. I don't know that there's questions about whether he had done it or been a part of it, but they're questioning whether he acted completely alone that night. DeFeo's trial began on October 14th, 1975, just about a year from the date of the murders. His defense attorney attempted an insanity plea for Butch, and the murder suspect, DeFeo, told jurors that he heard voices that told him to kill his family. The psychiatrist for the defense supported the claim, saying that DeFeo was neurotic and suffered from disassociative disorder. But the psychiatrist for the prosecution proved that DeFeo suffered from antisocial personality disorder and that that illness made the defendant aware of his actions but motivated by his self-centered attitude. So not that he was crazy, he was just... Sick. No, I'm thinking more spoiled. It's self-centered attitude. That's kind of what it sounds like. They, he wasn't mentally ill. He he was just an ass, basically. Is what I, the way that the way that I read that. Well, I mean, the antisocial personality disorder. But it said that he was aware of his actions and he was motivated by self-centered attitude. Yeah. I mean, did he really just do it just to get a life insurance policy? And why kill his brothers and sisters? And why execution style? And why did they just willingly lay there execution style? They had to hear the gunshots. I don't know. There would be, there, I mean, there's things no one's going to know. But when you're, if you're crazy enough in some capacity to kill your entire family. Well, that's where the questions come in. Because remember the part where he was saying that he heard voices? Yeah. There are people saying that he wasn't mentally unstable, that the verses, voices that he heard were because of the house. In the history, some claim that it was possessed by the de- he was actually possessed by the demons of 112 Ocean Avenue. So wait, I've always been under the impression that like Amityville, the movie, all the hauntings and the craziness and the demonic energy and blah, blah, blah came from the DeFeo killings. Like, I thought that's where it started, but it's before that. Like, people knew before that that house has just, like, always had bad energy. That house has always been haunted. No, I don't I don't think people knew. No. When they moved in, no, I don't think people knew. But I think that after he did that, people questioned. Because, again, he shot six different people in four different rooms without anybody waking up. Like, all these things that happened, I think people questioned whether he was insane or if there was something horrible about the house that possessed him. That's interesting. So people talk about the fact that the land in this, this I'm going to say, because I don't necessarily, I, I believe parts of Amityville happen. I really do. I don't, if I can't confirm something myself, historic, historical wise, that's hard for me to believe. But a lot of people claim that the Shintok, I want to say Shintok Indians, they, the land where the house was built was used for people who had gone mad and that they left them there to die and they buried them there and that there were chants that were done there. There was black magic that was done there and that a man named John, I researched it so heavily in every newspapers and on ancestry and I couldn't even find anyone by that name living in New York, but they say that the man who built the house, um, in 1924, that he pla- he practiced black magic. 
that witnesses in in the town say that he did black magic in the house far before the Tefeos moved in. So there are people that claim that the paranormal activity that happens, that the Tefeos were the victims of paranormal activity also. Got it. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I don't think that they really, I think they briefly touched it in the first one, the first movie, about the Indians and the people who had gone mad. I'm not sure. But I just always was under the unknowing impression, obviously, that it was because of some big crazy family killing before the Lutz family moved into the Amityville house. But interesting. Right? Yep. In December 1975, George and Kathleen Lutz bought the property for the bargain price of $80,000. Can you imagine? No, because everywhere around us, it's like $700,000 for a three-bedroom house, and it's run down, and it was made in the 70s. Like for a three-bedroom? <laughs> I think it's a one-bedroom. No. That's um, crazy. Kathy and George were married in July of 1975, and they each had their own homes, but they wanted to start over with a home together. Kathy had three children from a previous marriage. Daniel, nine, the one you've... The, I believe I that's think a that document. was the one I saw, yeah. Christopher, seven, and Missy, five. They also owned a crossbreed Malamute Labrador dog named Harry. And the only reason why I thought that was important to include, because did you watch the first movie? Do you remember the very... They maybe ended in both the same with the dog. With the dog, yeah. That killed me in the movie. And it's so funny. The whole movie is awful and scary and frightening. But those last few seconds of waiting for the dog to get to the car, I remember crying. And I saw it when I was really, really young, the first one. No. I saw it a really long time ago. I probably wasn't very long young. My mom wouldn't have let me see it. But I think I saw it on videotape. And I just remember at the end just jumping out of my seat and just being like, my God, don't leave the dog. Don't leave the dog. It, it probably affects everybody that way. Yes, 100%. And YouTube. if it doesn't, you're probably also a serial killer. Because I think that's one of the signs. Like, if you don't, don't care about the dog. If you don't have sympathy for the dog in the movie. The dog, you're just like, please get to the car. Don't leave the dog. Don't yeah. leave the dog. During their first inspection of the house, the real estate broker did tell them about the murders and uh, asked if they if it would affect their decision. They decided to think about it and decided it wasn't a problem. Would that not be a problem for you? It, it wasn't. They bought the house in 1975. A year. Not even, even a year, right? To, no, it was more than a year. The trial was in... You do this every time. I know. What is wrong with me and dates? The trial was in October of 1975, which was basically a year later. And they were buying the house in December of 75. So it was like a year and a half after they were killed. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. And I am all about the paranormal stuff. I would be, well, not murdered. Like, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> maybe if I didn't know why there was paranormal stuff. Maybe I'd, I'd draw the line at murder. <laughs> maybe I'd draw the line at six people being killed in their beds. Um, I don't know if I could have done it. But they decided it wasn't a problem. And I think that it wasn't a problem for them kind of is part of the reason why people don't believe them. They think there's ulterior it motives. It was a scheme from the get-go. Right. People yeah. think that. Um, the Let's family moved in in December of 1975, and this is the creepiest part of it. Much of the DeFeo's furniture was still in the house. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Is it just no? Just straight <laughs> no. across no? They included it for $400 as part of buying the house. $400 of buying the house was to... Was to keep their furniture. The dead people's furniture. The dead people's furniture. Absolutely. Great. All right. So, yeah. 
Okay, so I definitely draw the line at the furniture. I don't think I would have done it in the first place a year and a half later. I don't know if I would have done it 30 years later, 40 years later. But I certainly wouldn't have done it probably a year and a half no. later. One of my conditions would have been uh, get the furniture out. And paint it, replace all the flooring. Clean the blood up. Well, <laughs> Preferably. <laughs> well, I don't think they left the beds there. No, but mine as well if you left the furniture there. Like, that's gross. Yes. I, it's all this. It's all gross to me. Yeah, and a friend of George um, learned the history of the house, which I guess if you didn't live there, you might not have known because it's not like social media is now. And he insisted that it was blessed. At the time, George was a non-practicing Methodist and had no experience of what that would entail. And Kathy was a non-practicing Catholic. They brought in a Catholic priest who agreed to carry out the house blessing. And then there's a bunch of information about the names. I don't even know the real, I believe the real priest was Ralph Picarrero, but they changed his name through everything, and I don't know why, because he ended up being on TV and interviews and stuff about what had happened to him there. He arrived to perform the blessing while they were unpacking and went into the building and decided to carry out the rites. He was kind of walking around doing himself. When he flicked the holy water, he began to pray, and he heard a masculine voice demand that he get out over and over again while he was praying. So he heard that on his own, right? There wasn't something he, he reported that he says that. Yeah. He still said that years later. Yeah. That had nothing to do with the family. I don't know why he would lie, but after he left the house, he did not mention the incident to either Kathy or George. He did end up calling George Letts and advised him to stay out of the second floor room where he had heard the voice. And it was the former bedroom of Mark and John that had DeFeo. Mm-hmm. Kathy had been planning to use it as a sewing room, but during the call with the priest, it got super staticky. Like, George couldn't hear yeah. what the father was saying. The father said later that he was calling to tell him, don't use that room. Yeah. But he, George never heard it because of the static on the phone. Yeah. And I believe the father kept his claims. I don't think he ever changed that he said that. He also developed a high fever and blisters on his hands similar to a stigmata. I'm going to let you tell our listeners what stigmata means. Okay, so stigmata is referred to as stigmatis or stigmatic. The term originates from the line at the end of St. Paul's letter where he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So the priest claims that he had a physical reaction reaction to being in the house, that he not only heard the voices, but then he had that happen to him. At first, George and Kathy experienced nothing unusual in the house. Talking about their experiences later, they reported that they both felt they were each living in a different house. Like they were having... Yeah, I know that. I think that's part of the movie. That they were kind of going about their own business and not really connecting together with what was going on in the house? Yeah. Now, when I when I was reading this, I wanted to ask you a question about your experience. Because you have an experience in a haunted house. Is that kind of how you felt? And we'll tell your story someday, but not right now. But um, Yeah, I don't really... Yeah, I mean, I couldn't explain it because it, it's so weird. And if you want to ever tell a little story, I can try more to explain it. But yeah, it was kind of like a feeling of Being disconnection. Disconnected. Yeah, disconnected. Like, the life in the world and everyone else who's in the house was happening, and I was just like... In a different It was weird, place. yeah. So when I, and it's really weird when I read that, because I'd never read that before, that they had said they each felt that they were living in a different house. Yeah. And it made me think of your experience, yeah. that you felt so disconnected from what was actually happening around you. Yeah. 
Um, here is a list of what they described that would happen. George would wake up around 3.15 every morning and would go out to check the boathouse. He just had this feeling. Feeling I had to go check the boathouse. Later he learned that that was the same time, the estimated time of the DeFeo killings. The house was plagued by swarms of flies despite the winter weather. And when I say flies, I don't mean just some flies that got in. The priest was um, attacked by flies. And when I say that, that's how they projected it. But I don't know that he ever talked about the flies. He did mention that there were tons of flies, but not the over-dramatization of the movies. Right. But it was, it was, they moved in in December. There should not have been flies in the house. Yeah. It's more of a summer thing, I guess. Oh, for sure. A hot thing, yeah. Yeah, and so why were the flies there? Like, no one denies that the flies were there. No one has ever, like, said, nope, those flies weren't there. Like, they were. Why were they there in the winter? Um, Kathy had vivid nightmares about the murders and discovered the order in which they occurred in the rooms they took place. The Lutz children, this is the one that creeps me out, started all sleeping on their stomachs the same way that the dead bodies of the DeFeos were found. Nope. That's creepy. Kathy would feel a sensation of being embraced in a loving manner by an unseen force. Hmm. Nah, I don't get that. George discovered a small hidden room around four feet by five feet behind the shelving in the basement. The walls were painted red and the room did not appear in the blueprints of the house. The room came to be known as the Red Room. The room had a profound effect on the dog. Harry would cower and bark and run away whenever they opened that room. Yeah. And I always believe animals. Yeah. Animals and babies. Animals and babies, for (laughs) sure. Um, There were cold spots and odors of perfume and worse in areas of the house where there are no wind drafts or piping to explain the source. While tending the fire, Kathy and George both saw the image of a demon with his head half blown out. And it was burned into the soot of the fire, back of the fireplace. The, now, this is the creepy. This is where you're... Uh. The five-year-old daughter, Missy, developed an imaginary friend named Jody. I hate when stuff like that's in, like, movies and stuff. Like, that's on the creepiest thing in the world. The imaginary friend? Yes. But hers is, like, really weird. And I, I think this is what makes it almost unbelievable. It was a demon pig-like creature with glowing eyes. Yeah, the fact that it's so crazy, it's like, eh. Yeah, then it takes yeah. it away. Like, if she just had some imaginary friend named Jody with pigtails, you'd just be creeped the shit out. But yeah. because it's a pig, you're like, meh. You're like, come on. Yeah. Um, let see. In the early morning hours of Christmas 1975, George looked up at the house after checking on the boathouse. He saw Jody standing behind Missy at her bedroom window. And when I say he saw Jody, he just saw the red glowing eyes behind her. But he saw Jody standing in the window, so he ran up, because it was 3.15 in the morning, he ran upstairs, and she was asleep in her bed, but the rocking chair was rocking back and forth. Yeah. I just got a chill. Yeah, it's creepy. That was really weird. I got a chill <laughs> reading that one. The rocking chair just, I physically got a chill. George would often wake up to the sound of the front door slamming. He would race downstairs. The dog would be sleeping soundly at the front door, and no one else ever heard it but him. George would hear what described as a marching band tuning up or what sounded like a radio playing not on the frequency, like it was off. And when he went downstairs to or to locate the sound, to get closer to the sound, it would just stop. George realized that he started to bear a strong resemblance to Ronald DeFeo, and he actually began drinking at the bar where he was, where he ran in that day. When closing Missy's window, when Missy said, what Missy had said Jody climbed out of, Kathy saw red eyes glowing back at her. While in bed, Kathy received red welts on her chest caused by an unseen force, and she levitated two feet up in the air, which George witnessed. 
George tripped over a four-foot-high China lion ornament. It was an ornament. It was a four-foot-high China lion ornament in the living room, and then he found bite marks on one of his ankles. Later, the lion would be moved and reappear back upstairs in the sewing room. Like it would be in one place and it would be someplace else and no one would say that they moved it. George saw Kathy transform into an old woman of 90. Her hair was wild and shocking white. The face was a mass of wrinkles and ugly lines and saliva was dripping from her toothless mouth. This is creepy too. This is another one that gives me the chills. Missy would sing constantly while she was in her room, but whenever she left her room, she would stop singing. And the minute she went back, she would start singing again. And these are all things that family. Five-year-olds, little Be- girl. And these are all the things that... The family Claims says happened. happened. There's no proof. No, but they were... No. No, there is no proof. They were right. only there for 28 days. And this is why people are... Think it's not real. Because <clears throat> some of these things are so crazy. What's so crazy, though? Nothing... Well, if you're... The a, demon-like pig, that bothers me. Yeah, but if you're a skeptic of the whole paranormal world, you'd be like, okay, you're just all crazy, and you're making it up, and things don't move on their own. You know what I mean? Like, that's where all... That's where all the controversial stuff comes from is because they don't it's people don't believe that um one occasion kathy heard what sounded like a window being open and closed through a sewing room door even though she was sure no one was in there um there's complaints about doors and windows being constantly open and closed danny in his in his documentary talks about his window just being just rattling and opening and closing and there was no wind the letzes attempted to have another priest come out and bless the home but no one would agree They ended up taking matters in their own hands and armed with a crucifix. Oh, I'm missing one major thing that happened, though. Kathy had hung a crucifix in the living room, and it kept moving until it was literally upside down and gave up a sour smell. The crucifix, like, flipped over. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just paranormal. It was demonic. It was demonic to them. When they took matters into their own hands, like I started to say, they were armed with a crucifix, and they walked throughout the house reciting the Lord's Prayer. They kept hearing a chorus chorus of voices respond, will you stop, will you stop, as they were doing it, like Mm -hmm. telling them to stop. The final night was reported to the worst. There was bangings and rapping as loud as marching bands emanating throughout the house. Furniture was being moved by its own, and the children were being terrorized, like being chased by furniture. Yeah. That was the very last night they were there. They left. That was 28 days after they moved to the home. For whatever reason, it came to a boiling point that night. I don't know if maybe these things had happened before. I know the movie, like, the movie or during one of the documentaries or the book had talked about a dresser moving in front of a door. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, that night, it just went off. Furniture yeah. was moving around the house. And, um... Like, get out. Telling them, basically, get out. So they did. Yeah. They grabbed, really, just their clothes. I mean, they left their furniture there and everything. It says that they grabbed only a few belongings and fled the house, thankfully taking the dog, adding that part, and went to stay at Kathy Letts' mother's home. 20 days after the Letts' fled, paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called in by Marvin Scott, a news reporter, who covered the Amityville story, story and worked on a prior investigation with the Warrens. A team of reporters, investigators, and parapsychologists who, by the way, I don't know how I feel about the Warrens, mm-hmm. Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah. Um, but I've been reading Hans Holzer books and since, since I was old enough to be interested in this stuff. And he was he was an author back, I think his books are from the 60s or 70s. When I was buying them, they were already really old. Yeah. But I've always been a fan of his and the way that he 
he told the stories and the paranormal, like his research into the paranormal. So he was involved. So it kind of changed it for me a little bit because I don't know what I think about Ed and Lorraine Warren, but I've always sort of respected the way that Hans Holzer approached paranormal research. Mm -hmm. And he, he was there. I can't find a lot of things that mention that he was there, but he was definitely part of the Amityville investigations. It says that the investigators, parasitologists, and reporters all assembled, met at the home at 112 Ocean Avenue. The Letts family refused to re-enter the home during the investigation. During the investigation, Ed was physically pushed to the floor while using some religious provocation. Well, he was provoking, or religious provoking, in the basement. Lorraine also felt overwhelmed by the sense of a demonic presence and was plagued by her psychic impressions of the DeFeo family bodies laid along the floor in white sheets and a sense of being physically pushed back. The research team also captured an image of a spirit that appeared as a little boy peering from the second floor. Okay, have you seen that photo? Ugh, probably. We are putting it on the website because it's hard for me to debunk that photo. It is a little boy peering through the railing. Yeah, but Photoshop exists. 1977! I mean, 1977, how much Photoshop were they able to do? Oh, but it could have been done after the fact. But anyways, I'm going to put that photo on um, our our page because it's amazing. Some people say that it was actually one of the investigators in the house or it was one of the other newspaper reporters, but it's clearly a little boy. Yeah. It doesn't look like an adult. The Warrens believe that the energies from the past directly impacted the, impacted the lives of both the DeFeos and the Letzes. And it go the, what I had actually pulled up had more experience about John Ketchum, who supposedly owned the property, not built the house, but I believe the house was built by someone else. But he owned the land prior to the house being built in 1924, and that he's buried on the property. But I can't find a John Ketchum that lived in New York during that time. Yeah. And then they, the Warrens 100% believe that the Shinnecock Indians also... Um, left their imprint on the ground from keeping the people who were crazy and suffering and that they left the negative energy and the dark history there, the yeah. darkness there. So that's what the Warrens believe. They believe that it impacted both the DeFeos and the Letzes. The Warrens retrieved, re, the Warrens retrieved a handful of the Letzes earthly possessions and the deed for the property for the Letzes. Yeah. They got it out of the house. The Letzes sold the rest of their belongings. Who would have bought that? I don't know. And were their belongings, are they talking about the DeFeo's belongings too? Who knows? They relocated to California. The Ocean Avenue home that was once purchased for $80,000 in 1975 by the Letzes sold for 950000 in 2010. And there's been no further activity reported by the recent residents. I can't believe that somebody lives there. If they've changed it so completely. They even changed the address. The address is now, I believe, 108. But Ocean Avenue. Um, they changed. They the didn't windows. like take the house down and build. No, but they changed house. that whole front side of the house. Yeah, but it's still creepy. But yeah, people live there. But no one. I think there's been since 1975. I believe they said there were six people who have lived in the house, and not one of them have ever said anything's happened to them. Interesting. But six people. I, that's really a lot of people have lived in that house. A lot of times you live in the house for 20 years. Like yeah. your parents have lived in your house for 25 years, 30 years. Yeah. This is 1975. 30 years would be what? 2005? And then they've had six people live there. Yeah. 
So each person's only lived there eight years, eight to ten years, maybe. On November 21st, 1975, DeFeo was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life. All of his appeals and requests to the parole board to date have been denied. Kathy and George divorced in 1988. George Lutz died May 8, 2006 of heart disease, and Kathleen passed away before George on August 17, 2004. She was confined to a wheelchair for the last few months of her life. One of the Lutz children refuses to discuss what happened in the home, and Missy has never, ever made a comment. Both boys claim that the Hollywood movies overtold things and dramatized what happened, but both grown men now, when taken to the house for the filming of interviews and documentaries, still refuse to enter. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to follow and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat. And remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. Hi, listeners. Thanks for staying tuned for how you can participate in our Halloween episode the week of October 29th. We want you to tell your ghost story on our show. So all you need to do is call our number, leave a voicemail of your story, and we'll play it during our episode. The number to call is 805-283-9892. Be sure to state your first name only in the city and state where your paranormal experience happened. The number again is 805-283-9892. Thanks for being a great listener, and we can't wait to hear your ghost stories.